0: Join Pastor Jared as he sits down with Grace partners, David and Sherry Ogg, who serve in Papua New Guinea. They will talk about how God drew them into missions and what it's like living abroad, and give an update on the completion of the Bible translation into the Sambari language. I'm your host, Aaron Miller, pastor of equipping at Grace Baptist Church in Santa Clarita, California. Welcome to Magnify. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly
1: what I was thinking. Tell me what you guys are doing this summer. You got big plans?
0: We'll take a quick road trip out to see Jason, you know, his new house and yeah. uh, his wife. And, and then also Rachel and her husband who have a, a new grandchild for us that yeah. we haven't met yet. Okay. So we'll go out and see them and then we'll go visit her parents because it's been... In a,
2: Florida.
1: Oh, so are you driving all the way out? Yeah. The, well, mm-hmm. Do you guys just, enjoy driving? do. Like yes, you enjoy the do. road trip? Oh, I love yeah. driving. Really? Oh, I, I, I offer to
2: drive, but he's like, "No, I'm good." And so I just crochet. Or
1: <laughs> <and> <laughs> do you play do it straight? Like, are you? We'll do 15 hours a day. It's not
0: good for our backs. Now we tried that. Esther lives 15 hours away, mm-hmm. up in Oregon, and we tried to do that once in one trip, and yeah. it it was not good for our backs. So we couldn't move for the next we <laughs> week. <laughs>
2: Maybe eight to ten hours. We would be yeah. our max. Yeah.
0: So yeah. We, we break it up now.
1: I've always been a wimp. I can't. I can't do more than like 10 hours. It just, they can't do it.
0: Yeah, it's that's a smart way to do it. Yeah,
1: it's not worth it. Life's too short to drive 15 (laughs) hours straight, 20 hours straight, (laughs) 24 hours straight.
2: Stop and smell the roses. Yes,
1: exactly. Hey, I'm here with David and Sherry Aug. They are so generous with their time to come in and talk to us. David and Sherry have been Grace Partners
0: for 33 years?
2: Since 97. What would that be? I can't
0: do the math. Yeah, we've been in Papua New Guinea since 91. Okay. But we've been Grace Partners since 97.
1: Okay. Grace partners for many years, Yes, the math of which will continue to elude me, have served in Papua New Guinea in a variety of roles. They're here today uh, just generously to talk about their lives and their backgrounds so we can hear a little bit about what they've been doing, serving uh, in Papua New Guinea with the Simbari tribe, uh, working to see churches planted there and the scriptures translated into that language. So thank you guys for being here. So for people who don't know Dave and Cherry Og, tell us the Dave and Sherry Og life story.
2: <laughs> okay. I'm a third-generation missionary kid. My grandparents worked many years in Paraguay, South America. And I was born when my parents were in missionary training in Wisconsin, and we moved to Columbia when I was about two years old. Mm. So I lived down in Columbia, South America my whole growing up years, from two to about 18 mm. My parents uh, worked out in a remote jungle location with uh, one of the 60 people groups of Colombia. They were called the Piapoco. Hmm. So I grew up out there in the jungle running around with the Piapoco kids and swimming in the rivers and fishing and going in canoes. And just from a very young age, I started to see the spiritual darkness of, in the lives of the people around us. Hmm. And about that time, I was probably about five or six years old when I started to become aware of the spiritual darkness in my own life and how no matter how hard I tried to be good, I just couldn't do it. And I remember pretty clearly one day sitting on the bed next to my mom after receiving some loving discipline Mm. And just starting to ask her questions about heaven, wondering if I would get to go there. And she shared with me that there was one way that I could go, and and that was through trusting in Christ as my Savior. So, as a little girl, I remembered making that decision and just being f- overjoyed, knowing that I would get to spend eternity in heaven with mm. Christ. Of course, uh, my understanding was very basic at that time, but it grew over the years. I remember... My first real taste of excitement about ministry when I was in junior high. I was out in town visiting some friends, and I remember taking my guitar. I had learned to play when I was about 12, and just getting to take my guitar and with a group of missionary kids and hike up on the mountain and do these Bible clubs for kids. And I got to be the one to lead them in singing songs about Jesus. And just God started instilling in me an excitement about being involved in ministry and using the gifts that He had given me. Later on, when I was in my teenage years, I remember one Sunday morning sitting uh, with our co-workers, listening to uh, some audio cassettes of uh, some missionaries in Papua New Guinea, sharing about what God was doing in the Bisorio tribe where they worked and how they had brought the gospel to the Bisorio people. And on these cassettes, they were sharing testimonies from the Bisorio people. And I was just um, so Impacted by those testimonies, and and then hearing um, about all the people groups in Papua New Guinea, there were about six to eight hundred people mm. groups, and many of them were begging for missionaries and sending letters out to the missionaries in town, saying, "Can you send us? Please send us some missionaries." And mm. that just God just really used that to pierce my heart with um, the needs. Um, around the world, but specifically in Papua New Guinea. And, and it just broke my heart that there weren't enough missionaries to send to to those people groups that were asking. And so God, This is at
1: 15 or 16? At about
2: 15 or 16. So you were already
1: thinking, already kind of feeling the Lord tugging your heart, oh, yeah. not just for missions generally, but towards Papua New Guinea. <laughs> yes.
2: Wow, yeah. So nice. I, was, I was starting to get very excited about that and just wondering how the Lord could use me someday to bring the gospel to a people group over there in Papua New Guinea. When I was about uh, 17, I think it was, my parents and their co-workers were getting ready to start teaching the Pia people through the Bible chronologically. We were about three months away from beginning the, the teaching in there for the first time. And there had been a, a group of uh, these Colombian terrorists in the area, and we knew that they were close by, but we didn't have a piece about leaving at that time when Mm -hmm. we were so close to starting the Bible teaching. That
1: was after 14, 15, 16 years? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Among that people? group. Yeah. Wow, okay.
2: So it took many years for them to get to that stage where they were ready to to teach God's Word to the Mm. people there. Anyway, to make a long story short, one day uh, four men from this terrorist group arrived in our front yard with their guns, Mm. and they accused us of being crazy things, like being with this American CIA and all that stuff, and they did not believe that we were there for spiritual purposes. And they uh, threatened us and told us we had to leave immediately. Hmm. And so I just remember, you know, our family being absolutely devastated, having to pack up overnight and escape for our lives the next day because we didn't know what they were going to do to us. So they had been taking people hostage so, we didn't know if they were going to do that to us. So, God, in His grace and mercy, allowed us to escape and, and get out to town. But I'll never forget the last picture in my mind I had of the Piapoco people lining the shore as we were leaving early in the morning and just very, very sad because they didn't know if they'd ever see us again. And, yeah. and we were very, very sad because we were so close to presenting the gospel in there. Yeah, We left and, and were able to um, get out to town. And um, my parents ended up going into a different ministry the last year that I was in Colombia because of my mom's health. But the other two families continued working with the Pia people from a different location. Okay. Many of them had to come out to town where, where they were living, and they taught them through Scripture. And a church was born in okay. there. And it made me think of, you know, the Scripture where Jesus says, I will build my church mm. and the gates of mm-hmm. hell will not prevail. So the Piapoco people d- did finally get to hear God's word and that village that we were forced out of, maybe twenty-five to thirty years later, some of the Piapoco Christians themselves traveled way up into the jungle to that village and brought the gospel. And there are believers up there now.
1: That's incredible. So
2: it yeah, it's just wow. <laughs> it's all God. That's amazing. Know? So my last year in Colombia was really exciting because I got to travel around to the churches with my parents um presenting. The needs to the Colombian Christians in the cities who didn't know that there were people groups in their own country Mm -hmm. out in the jungle who didn't have the gospel. So God used my parents to go around challenging these Christians to get involved. And right about that time, our um, organization started a Bible college and training missionary training center for them. So I got to rub shoulders with the students, and it was just a really exciting last year to be there and then i left and went off to a 2 year bible college and that's where david comes into the story.
1: So you came back back to the states then? Yes, too. I want to hear david's story but i'm just curious what was that transition like for you back to the united states?
2: I was i felt like a fish out of water as yeah. most missionary kids do. <laughs> I had never worked or driven a car, so i right. of course i had to learn all of that and scared to death going to the bank and mm-hmm. But I was excited um, about what God had in store for me. And so Bible college was a really good starting point for me to get, you know, I felt like I knew God's Word pretty well growing up, but there was a lot I didn't know. And the more I studied, the more I realized that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. So it was a really excellent time of getting that firm foundation myself in Mm. the Word of God.
1: That's awesome. David, tell us about your background.
0: Well, my parents uh, moved our family to Santa Clarita in 1968 when I was four years old. And so uh, we lived uh, not too far from Bokeh Park.
1: Dave and Cherry and I are neighbors. They live. We live two streets away from each other. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, yeah, back in the days when I was a kid, I used to hike around in the hills right here where we're sitting. That's awesome. Yeah, I went to local schools, Rosedale Elementary School, Arroyo Seco Junior High School, and Saugus High School. I graduated from in 1982. Growing up, I, I grew up in church hearing hearing uh, the preaching of the Word. and But I also grew up as a kid who was in the church, and everybody kind of assumed I was I was a Christian, and I was going through a lot of the emotions and and you know, conforming, mm-hmm. tr- being a good Christian kid. But as the years went on, I started to get up into junior high years and I just really started to feel conviction. Uh, I started I, I never didn't believe what I was hearing, but I don't know if I realized the implications, the full implications of the gospel that that I was a sinner. Mm. So you know, I had heard about Jesus and his shed blood for our sins, but I didn't understand that I really needed that. Mm wasn't until I was about junior high and I really started to see the ugliness of my own sin and felt felt conviction. And and so I was in that place and a neighbor invited me actually to a Calvary Chapel uh, Friday night concert down in Costa Mesa. And Chuck Smith shared the gospel in a really powerful way and just kind of brought a lot of the loose ends together in a comprehensive presentation of the gospel. And I saw that I was a sinner who needed salvation, that God loved me enough to send his son to pay the price that I deserved and die for me and then raise again. Mm. And How old were you when all that happened? It was like junior high, okay, mid-70s yeah. or so. Fast forward a few years, I became a welder, certified welder for Los Angeles uh, while I was still in high school. I was kind of going to COC welding school mm. at the same time I was uh, finishing up high school. And I got certified really young because I was Really passionate about becoming a certified welder. But I made it there, and then I wasn't as passionate about that anymore. (laughs) I did get hired on with uh, Southern California Gas Company. had a really good job. I was working at the gas facility that they have behind Rye Canyon there. Yeah. And uh, it was a really good career job. I absolutely loved it. From there, I transferred over to Santa Barbara to another plant that they have over there in Goleta. and. I started going to another church there and at the, and just started growing. It was really the first time I moved away from home mm-hmm. and I was living out on my own and I was trying to live by faith and was just really getting into being plugged in at the church, serving at the church, growing in my faith through all the Bible studies. And sometime along the, the line, uh, somebody talked about how important it was to memorize scripture for spiritual growth. And so started doing that, not just a verse, but like Big chunks. So mm-hmm. I, I memorized Colossians three, the whole chapter first, and that got me thinking. You know, it talked about uh, setting your minds on things above, not on things of earth, and everything I was doing at the gas company was all focused around, you know, welding or metal that was going to rust and mm-hmm. be gone. And so um, I realized I wanted to be a part of something that lasts mm-hmm. with more lasting results. And then later, I memorized Second Corinthians chapter four, which talks about, um, you know, how. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And it talks about how we, like, jars of clay have this treasure. And when you're memorizing big chunks like that, whole chapters, like, it, it does a number on you. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. it fills your mind and it, like, displaces all the cares of the world. And pretty soon, like, all you're thinking about all day long, even when you're at work and everywhere, is these scriptures that you're working on. So, it's pretty cool and, and very transformative. So, so, I was in the middle of memorizing these things. And... Realized I had a treasure that was too good to keep to myself, and I felt a desire to get involved. And uh, right around that time, a missionary came through, uh, and he was a missionary from Papua New Guinea, mm-hmm. and he was going to be leading a short term team there that summer. So I went on that team. Mm-hmm and got to work very hard in a tropical climate (laughs) to help out the missionaries there, building concrete uh, cisterns. But then we also got to visit some tribal locations out there. We went out to uh, these uh, two different people groups. One of the people groups, the missionary, was still learning the language, and it was very dark, spiritually dark, spirit houses with fetishes everywhere, and just, it was amazing. I never, it was kind of creepy. And Mm -hmm. uh, we went over to this other tribe, uh, flew over to this other location and it was the Besodio tribe, hmm, the tribe okay. that she had mentioned actually. It's incredible. Uh, and we <laughs> uh, got to see this tribe and this tribe, uh, the missionaries had already presented the gospel. There was a thriving church there. The missionaries were halfway through the, uh, translating the Bible already. And we just saw the joy of the Lord. We saw uh, just, it was like night and day mm. difference between the two tribes. Even though I didn't know the language, I could just I could just see it and we did hear testimonies from those episodial people translated by the missionary uh, that evening and it kind of put me to shame because I you know we are the 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 missionaries coming over for the summer but these uh, tribal believers had a maturity about them that that I didn't have as a young guy so it was pretty pretty amazing and I thought I want to be a part of this so I went back and uh, left the gas company which most everybody I knew told me, don't do it, don't do it. But I, was, I needed to follow God, you know. Yeah. So, so I left and headed off to Bible College, and uh, and I met Sherry there. She'd already been there for, for a while, and so, yeah. And yeah. you guys
1: you guys met, and it was just love at first sight. Yeah, I think one of the
2: first <laughs> things that drew us together was both of us had a mutual love for Papua New Guinea yeah. and a desire to go right. there someday. And, and I remember I had to work one day and i wasn't able to be with the rest of the student body when david showed his slides he set up the slide projector and showed his slides mm. of papua new guinea and i was so disappointed and so i asked him would you mind showing them to me later yeah. <laughs> so it was just the two of us later in the classroom and he showed went through the slides again and we discovered that we both had the same love and desire to mm. for Uh, the people of Papua New Guinea and to serve the Lord there someday. And
1: even that same people group that you had mentioned (laughs) that you had been a part of. Yeah. We just, that
2: was amazing. And it just showed us God's hand and, and all of that in our lives and in the way he led us. And the other thing that, um, kind of drew us together was that we had the same mandatory laundry time Saturday mornings (laughs) when most students should be sleeping in. We had to do laundry at 7 a.m. Yeah. So we ended up in the laundry room together and he was reading this book about a pilot in Colombia who got taken hostage and held and he he escaped miraculously in the night. Uh, The book was called When Things Seem Impossible. And that pilot happened to be our pilot. I so I knew the people in the book, and he was asking me questions about it, and uh, we were talking about about that book a lot. And then um, I also told him that I had this cousin in uh, at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago a couple hours away, but I didn't have a car. He did. I said, I, I didn't have any way to get there. I'd love to visit him. And he said, well, I can take you. And I'm like, really? When? Today. Let's go. <laughs> I was like, "Wow, this guy is so cool!" And so we grabbed uh, my two cousins who were also going to Bible college, and the four of us drove to Chicago and never did find my cousin because you know he didn't have cell phones right, in cell those phone, days. Yeah, like, we couldn't right. find him.
1: Just show up and open. But best. Uh,
2: but <laughs> along the way, we listened to these uh, sermon tapes and just were talking about the Lord and just. Both of us so excited about what I was doing. And-,
0: and we had a couple of her cousins in the car with us. Uh, one of the guys was in the front with me and she was in the back. And they, they just kind of were... Very You're quiet, very shy and yeah. cousins. Because so we, we were like really talking. connecting right. and they were just like watching what's happening. It's <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> to think that the Lord works through laundry yeah. slots, right,
1: to <laughs> yeah. to bring people together and craft his plan. That's incredible.
2: Yeah, the cool thing is it happened to be Valentine's Day. Okay. So we consider that Valentine's As Day the date. anniversary of our first
1: date. Yeah. You guys got married while you were both still in the training center?
2: Yeah, between semesters. We flew back here to California from Wisconsin and okay. got married over a Christmas break December 21st, 1987, Okay, had Christmas with his family and then flew back to finish Bible college.
1: Now talk about the the training center. So I think it's really fascinating all the things that you have to be equipped with to go do work in a tribal context. So just talk about some of the things that you guys did. I know that there's theological training, there's very practical training, just for the uninitiated person, talk about what that all involved.
0: Yeah, so our mission provides training to prepare people for this work of uh, church planting among unreached people groups, realizing that Even a normal college wouldn't have the the specialized training that you need for that. Um, So the first two years of that is a a Bible school. It's just a two-year degree in biblical studies. And then we did that in Wisconsin. And then the next uh, year was up in uh, Canada we spent, actually. And it was New Testament church principles, Mm -hmm. theology, family, teamwork development. Some of that takes place just by... Doing sports together as, as all yeah. the candidates. And, you know, there's nothing like everybody getting pumped, you know, out on the sports field to, to bring <laughs> things out, you know, like maybe you need to work on. And during the summer, we we went out and built what we call jungle camp houses. Mm-hmm. It was like little shelters out in the woods and lived there for a month off grid. Um, and it made a little makeshift village all as candidates and uh, just learning to live on little and that kind of thing. So, yeah, so that was that part. And then the next year was getting into linguistics and more of the cross-cultural uh, side of things, anthropology, phonetics, translation, and literacy principles, and all that kind of thing. So uh, we learned about how to write things down in the international phonetic alphabet, which we really needed. Mm. Uh, very well trained for, for this kind of work. Um, that doesn't make it easy still, but mm, right. <laughs> at least you know what you're supposed to do when you get there. Yeah,
1: And we should mention, you guys are with Ethnos 360. That's right. Right, And they have their, their training center there.
0: That's right. And they have, you know, they've been around for 80 years. So it's over the years, they've been able to kind of learn from mistakes and, and implement that into the training so that people can be more effective. Yeah. Each year, people are doing a better job. Learning the languages quicker. The new missionaries coming over to New Guinea are learning the language quicker than we did when we came over. <laughs> mm, that's
1: great. So he's getting yeah. constantly refined. Yeah. As I understand it, while you're in the training center, you're meeting missionaries from all over the world and kind of choosing a target location. Is yes. that right? So what was that like for you guys? You already had a love for, for Papua New Guinea. How was that kind of solidified in terms of a decision?
0: Well, we went to Colombia twice. Uh, I We got engaged down there, actually. I met okay. her family down there and I <laughs> love <laughs> Colombia too but they were having a lot of problems with the with the guerrilla warfare and all that down there and and originally and her family was there which was probably the biggest motivation mm-hmm. that we had to go there but we talked about it and in the end I was actually fine with going there and and but I didn't want to drag her where she didn't want to be so so I kind of left it with her and
2: so we prayed about it and just never had a peace about going to Colombia and as it turned out my family ended up leaving cuz my youngest sister got leukemia so they came back to the states to get treatment for her. So we would have been down there and they would have been here in, mm-hmm. in the States. Yeah. Okay. So God has his ways of living. But in us. the end,
0: she believed too that she had been called to, to Papua New Guinea as well. And, and so we decided to go there.
1: Okay. So walk us through that that first year. You show up in Papua New Guinea. What happens next?
0: Yeah. Wow. So You got we, three suitcases. Well, the first thing we do is learn the national language. In Papua New Guinea, it's called uh, Melanesian Pigeon. And then after that, we have to select a a trouble. you know, it's allocating. uh, People group assessment are done where you try to strategize, find the best places to go. But there's also sometimes places like where we went, the Sambari had missionaries, but their coworkers had left and they hadn't really got off the ground and hadn't been able to make a lot of progress. So they needed reinforcements. And that's actually where we went uh, and coming to the Sambari, met them, that other uh, family that was in there. And then... Went out to the location got to see what it was like and saw the needs there and so we uh, allocated with this team and they were just about to open a new airstrip so this airstrip was was not built by us and we try to stay out of that as much as possible because we want to keep the main thing the main thing and it's yeah. things like uh, community development projects there it's easy to get pulled into them especially when you're struggling with language and you don't want to do language study it's right. a good it's nice to have things like that to distract to say oh I have to go do this no, <laughs> so it's 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 actually dangerous to a language learner to have a lot of stuff like that to be bothered with so but the
2: Zibaris had been working for about seven years by hand on this airstrip they didn't have machinery or anything
0: giant trees like a meter in diameter and cheese it's like they so. just
2: carved the top of the of this (sighs) mountain mountain off. off.
0: It's incredible.
1: For someone who's not familiar with a tribal missions context, just kind of talk through some of the logistics of that. Yeah,
0: so this location is... is if you look at a map of Papua New Guinea, it's kind of in the middle of the country, but there's a border between two provinces, uh, the Gulf province, which is a low flatland, and then the mountainous region called the Eastern Highlands. So we're kind of right on that border. On a good day, you can actually see the coast. Uh, it's a very rural area. There's no roads. The, the last roads end miles and miles away from us. And so uh, there's no way to get there except for small uh, mission aircraft coming, landing on an airstrip. You could get there by helicopter, too, but the helicopters are pretty expensive. so. Mm. Most of the time, you try to fly with a fixed wing. Yeah, so there's no no utilities, no services, no roads, just, and uh, so yeah, going out there. In the earliest days, we didn't even have a a house to live in, so we lived in a hut with uh, a thatched roof hut, round hut, with two little children. Okay. And well, I started to build the house, and we put a couple of solar panels up, and it was really muddy outside. But you know, it was probably some of the the most amazing times we had with the people cuz we were right in a hut in the village with them and it was just a really wonderful way to kind of start out our time there i mean it's not sustainable to live like that it's like camping in the dirt in a in a in a tent with nothing around right. you know it was Not even an outhouse, hardly. So it's like really rough uh, conditions, but it was wonderful to connect with the people so closely uh, during that time. And then uh, we built a a house and— You just built a house? We had to build a house. Nowadays, they have these missionary tech teams that will come and build a house for you, but back in those days, we had to do it ourselves. So, yeah, yeah, we we had the people bring in these bush poles real straight that we used for studs, and then uh, we stood them all up and then put corrugated iron on the roof, put some woven cane on the walls— Put solar panels and batteries, kind of like an inverter or two for mm-hmm. like like you would have in a in an RV for boondocking or whatever, and and then uh we would catch water off the roof. It rains 180 inches a year there, so that's. Pretty much oh, uh, like here. <laughs> half an inch a day. Yeah, it's like this winter, you know. Yeah, right. When it rains <laughs> for two weeks month, nonstop, yeah. that's what it's like right. all the time there.
2: It's about 5,000 feet elevation where okay. we lived in the village. Right, okay. So it was cold yeah. in the mornings and evenings. Cold
0: mountain village, but it's yeah. like a, a mountainous rainforest is what it is. Okay. I mean, right there where we live on the airstrip, of course, all the trees have been hacked down. But if you just walk off a few hundred yards to the side, it's, right. you're in the jungle right. again. Right. Okay. Hey, everybody, I'm Christian Delgado, and we're excited to announce this year's high school and junior high summer camp, June 12th through the 16th at the beautiful Heartland Summer Camp facilities. This year's theme is Behold. Students will learn to behold God's faithfulness and saving grace offered to sinners like the Patriarch Jacob and why their lives are to be lived to the glory of God. Limited spots are available, so make sure to register soon on our website. You can find that link in the description of this episode. We can't wait to see your students there.
1: I want to talk about ministry, but I'm curious, and I bet lots of people would be too, just talk about what daily life was there. So you built this house. Where do you get your food? You're homeschooling your kids there. What what does a normal day or week look like in the Simbari village?
2: Yeah, when our kids were little and we were just starting out in language study, we would all go out as a family to the village. Take the kids with us. Uh, sit around with the men and women there and practice the f- words and phrases that we were learning, and try to learn some new ones and write them down. It's really cool how, when before you can really speak the language, your kids are kind of like a bridge. They have kids. We have kids. You know, they watch how we interact with our kids. Do we haul off and hit them when they're naughty, Mm -hmm. you know, like they do? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and so just even right from the start, we're able to live out the gospel in that way and in our interactions with them and with our family. Yeah, just a lot of time spending with them. I would sometimes leave the kids with David once in a rare while and go hike with the women to their Mm -hmm. garden and just see how they got their food and everything. And then uh, because of all the rain we got there, laundry was another big hassle. Um, I would wash at nighttime so that I could hang out the laundry first thing in the morning and to catch the little bit of sun that we would get. Mm -hmm. And more often than not, we would get a sudden downpour, and I'd go (laughs) running out there to the line and pull everything down and have to hang it all back up again inside on some clotheslines that we had. And we had this... uh, Wood stove that we would start up to kind of get it heated in the house yeah. and dry the clothes a little faster. So that just living took a lot of time, mm-hmm. um, cooking from scratch, You know, taking care of the kids later when they started, um, when they were school age, I was homeschooling them. There were people at the door without warning, quite often um, bringing their jungle vegetables to us okay. Um cucumbers, green beans, sweet potatoes. They have like 60 different kinds of sweet potato there. So we would buy our food from them or trade. We would have soap or the ramen noodles they wanted to trade with us. Mm -hmm. Another thing that took a lot of my time was medical work. They didn't have a clinic close by. So we kept like a pharmacy in our house Mm -hmm. basically of of the you know, antibiotics and and emergency medications that our doctors out in town um, would tell us to have on hand for our family and for the people. So a lot of time was spent just kind of pouring through the medical books trying to figure out, you know, what their symptoms were pointing to. Sometimes it was just too hard, and I'd have to talk to our doctor on the radio and Mm. get his input, and he'd say, well, try giving them this antibiotic or this medication. So that took a lot of time, but it was also, I I just felt like such a joy because I was able to do something to help them in a tangible way before we even really learned you know, much of their language. In fact, some of my a lot of my first words and phrases had to do with medical work, you know, mm-hmm. body parts and func- body functions.
1: <laughs> 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 you Stuff you never thought you'd learn right them out of me. Some
2: the gate. weird questions, but. <laughs> That's funny. So, anyway, that was um, pretty much what my days were, were taken up with.
1: And it's interesting missions is always incarnational, but I think, especially in the context you're describing, I mean, you guys are, are moving there, incarnating the gospel, and you're living among the people, right? It's not like 9 to 5, hey, we're off hours now. Why don't you come back tomorrow? <laughs> yeah,
2: later exactly. when I started homeschooling kids, it got to be an overwhelming amount because people would hike from villages far away to come and seek medical treatment. Okay, yeah. And just trying to to do everything um, at once was really challenging. So, um, we ended up building a small clinic for the community. And a Sambari guy went out to town and got some basic training. And he came back, and for years he was running that clinic. So, that was a, a huge
0: blessing. That's awesome. But Sherry is kind of a super, super woman and all nah. that she's doing out there. <laughs> <laughs> you guys both are. You're doing all the things, man. But, you know, like you talked about incarnational and that, that you know, when you begin uh, struggling through learning language in those early days, you're humbling yourself talking like a child and they know that you've left your family and your your home place to come out there and you've told them why because you want to tell them about uh, God's word and and about about this God who loves them and this is obviously very important to you you're willing to leave your your home and and you're willing to humble yourself and be laughed at mm. and so that speaks a lot to them mm-hmm. when you when you connect with them with language you you start to learn some phrases you know just sometimes you would say a greeting in their own language and they they would just light up mm-hmm. and that's that's of course helpful to you because that's the way God designed us to learn language relationally not not just by memorizing it in a classroom a, a list of words or you know lexical forms we're we're supposed to learn it in rela- in a relational context through communicating with with people because that's what communication is and what language is for so you know like When we go out to these places, these are unreached people groups, meaning they're unknown, unwritten languages. There is no language course to teach us. We have to create that language course. So, you know, at any given time we were preparing a language course, we had to prepare our own language courses. We would usually uh, make it up of dialogue or monologue. It's something that was really meaningful to us, like that we had done. Maybe she talked about going to a garden. So, like, oh, I went to the garden yesterday. We pulled the weeds out from the sweet potatoes. And then we came back, you know, so we would like get a a language informant and and ask them how to say that and Mm -hmm. then using the pidgin language. Mm -hmm. And then we would memorize it. And then we go out and use that in the village and practice it Mm. talking. Uh, The other thing we do is practical expressions. And these are like we try to do five a day and they're just little expressions like good morning or. Say it again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a really (laughs) important one. (laughs) What is it? Yeah, right. (laughs) You know, and you try to learn like five a day, 25 a week. Mm. And then, of course, you move on next week and you've got to review the old ones and you're trying to learn new ones. And then uh, we would make up cassette tape drills where we would take like a a frame or a, a sentence and try to swap out a word and maybe change the modifier or change uh, the tense in a verb and have a cue there and then we would drill ourselves and, that, and then you would take whatever that is and you it would prepare you to go out when you're out with the people you have something to say you could you could work on those things with the people but you try to do that in a in an actual cultural context you're not wanting to do it in an office context you want right. to do it in in their world you're, you're wanting to be become one of them yeah. so you need to be out there seeing and learning the culture and you know like one of the first weeks i was doing this uh i, I come in and i sit in the house with this simbari guy and i look up and it was like frog apocalypse you know there was like <laughs> a thousand <laughs> frog legs hanging from the roof and it was they were smoking them you know yeah. this guy was in there with a the fire and they have these uh frogs are nambula and so there was these big ones called Nambula Suwanda and They were just—they just went crazy uh, in abundance, and they go down with their flashlights at night, and they see little gleaming eyes, and then they grab them all up. Yeah. So, this is really important to know, actually, when you start teaching uh, about the plagues of Egypt. Yeah. Because if you don't know that, then— a plague of frogs isn't actually a plague. It's like a blessing, because yeah. they're thinking, "Wow, all the food just <laughs> just came to us. Just came to us," you know. So these are kind of things that actually really are helpful when you're out there and you see these things in in their culture. And yeah, so much of what Jesus taught too is wasn't just the abstract. He took mm-hmm. concrete stories and, and parables and used that to, to explain these uh, abstract truths. Yeah. And it's really helpful when you begin teaching to have those examples because you've witnessed them, you've, ex- you've experienced them with the people. So, And you're building relationships with people oh, while you're course. learning oh, the language. You're yeah. just with people all day long. Oh, all day long. <laughs> learning
1: them, learning the language, learning the culture.
0: Yeah, it's like a third to half a year day, every single day for years, is, is just spent out hanging out with the people and doing things with them. And so you're getting to know them, building relationships. And they're getting to know you. And of course, like Sherry said, you're modeling Christ and, yeah. and love, showing the love of God to them. And those through through laying down your life basically to learn this language. It, it's dying to yourself daily. It's, mm. it's one of the hardest things you, you ever do. It's, it's rough.
1: And how long did it take before you guys felt comfortable in the language, comfortable culturally, comfortable in relationship in the tribe?
0: Uh we don't feel comfortable in the language still. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. We still feel more like we speak like children. <laughs> We're officially signed off on uh, as fluent after 7 years, okay? Which is longer than it should have taken. I was a welder. I am a very unlikely person to to be getting into linguistics and this was a hard language. Very long words that I have <laughs> seen this take in Basque before. Yes. And there's like 25
1: or 30 <laughs> letter words. We have A thousand,
0: oh, wow. forms the word the. thousand forms of the word the. 1000 forms of the word the. Yeah. Lots of inflection. Yeah. So, for example, in Greek, uh, the clause, I go to prepare a place for you, that's in John, right? That's four words in Greek. In English, it's like eight words, because English is less inflected than Greek. Mm-hmm. In Simbari, it's one word. That's one word. So, it's, yeah, it's much more inflected than Greek is. Okay. So, it's just really complex. and And again, nobody was able to tell us how it worked, so we had to figure it all out. And, and you guys were developing the At the, the beginning, alphabet, right? yeah. Yeah. So all these language lessons and all this language data that we're getting, we're recording it in the International Phonetic Alphabet. We take that and then we do a phonemic analysis on it, which is a process that helps us to determine which alphabetic characters we are going to need to represent to represent all that language data. Uh, so we came up with seven vowels and 18 consonants, and that became our Sambari alphabet, at which time we uh, start working on a lexicon, and that's a tool that we use to build a literacy program and later uh, our translation. So, yeah.
1: That's incredible. So put all that then in the context of the, the translation process. What what all is involved? That's figuring out the language a little bit, but then how do you start translating the scriptures then? I mean, you, you've learned the language. What are, what are the steps... Um that you guys walk through for that.
0: Yeah. So the biggest foundation of I mean, of course there's the pre-field training, but then the biggest foundation is learning the, the language of the people group, uh, the receptor language or the target language. You gotta have a knowledge of that. Like some are trying to translate through interpreters. It's you don't it's just really dangerous because in the early days I actually heard a Simbari guy try to translate a Bible verse in from pidgin, the national language, into Simbari it was a disaster. Mm. It was horrible. If I didn't know the language, like, because I knew the language, uh, I knew that he had completely botched it. And mm. I just kind of stayed quiet and was like a fly on the wall listening to this happen. But like, if you didn't know the language and you were just taking their word for it, this interpreter's word for it, oh, this is how you say that. But it wasn't how you say it. Mm. Like, uh, so you, you're, you're putting too much credit on them because of their cultural worldviews that are, that are not, Coming from Scripture, it's not a biblical worldview they're coming from, so it affects the way they interpret mm. the Scripture. So it's it's pretty. It depends on who the interpreter is, of course. Right. But still, it's 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 something you have to be very careful of. And the best thing, the most important thing, is to have a foundation in the language yourself. And then we uh, draft an exegetical draft the best we can do. That takes some time as you're going through and working it up the best you can in in the in the Simbari language, and then. And then we take it to a, a translation informant, and we ask him to record it the way he would say it. Mm. And then Sherry would transcribe that recording into a typed text. And then we sit down and we take some of the elements from the, the more natural flow of it and integrate it into the text so that it becomes, uh, or yeah, the best of both. You know, like we want to be true to the original languages, but at the same time, like the NASB goals of the translators was to be true to the original languages, but also to be grammatically correct. And to be understandable to the masses. Mm. So it's like the problem is those kind of pull against each other, right. To be true to the original language, like again, Greek only has four words, but then English has eight. Does that mean I'm not being true to the original mm. if I put in eight words in English? Yeah you know so you have that constant like tension mm-hmm. between those those two things. being understandable and grammatically correct in the target language looks a little different than it does in, in the original language. Mm. And And so you're just always trying to balance that.
2: And natural sounding too, so that it doesn't sound like this English, you know, manual that you get with some utility and, and you can tell it wasn't translated by an English speaker. Right. Yeah, you right. can, they're English words, but they're kind of jumbled. Yeah, you don't awkward. want your translation to turn out awkward right, like that.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, so anyway, we we integrate the best of, th- of that into a draft, and then we we st- have to test it and make sure it actually says what we think it does and communicates the same dynamic uh, that the original language did. And so we bring in people who have never heard it before, we read it to them, let them tell it back to us, mm-hmm. ask them a lot of questions, and then we, we find out, you know, like, you can be cruising along, going through, and everything's just beautiful, and they're telling things back, and they're tracking, then all of a sudden, boom— off the rails, and you just know, okay, something's messed up here. And then sometimes it's as simple as you take, like, a clause, a couple of words in a clause, and you've reversed the order of them. Mm. And then, boom, like, then it's back on track again, and and they they can track with everything. Uh, There's just a different way of handling participant introductions. Uh, You know, you're you're tracking participants, tracking themes. Everything has to agree uh, with the person, number, and gender, and with all that inflection I was talking about Mm -hmm. uh, on all the different articles that we have a thousand forms of the word the like there's all these things that all have to like harmonize in yeah. in the verse uh, with the different things so uh, any little thing can throw it off the rails so so we we do that like multiple times until we make sure that it's coming back perfectly and then we have to do a back translation which Sherry does and that's ba- basically where we would just reverse translate it as literal as possible. Kind of so like that,
2: an interlinear Bible. Yeah, it's almost like an interlinear. Loose, a lo- readable. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> and a consultant, a Bible translation consultant would then take that, and he would send us a bunch of questions after going over that about our translation. Hmm. Sometimes we'd make adjustments, and then we'd answer his questions, and then we'd have to get together and do a face-to-face with Simbari helpers who had never seen the translation again so you needed quite a bit a lot of people to do all this yeah. and then we would read it in in simbari and then the the helper would have to tell it back in melanesian pidgin, hmm. which the consultant can understand and then he would be able to hear with his own ears this is communicating what's supposed to communicate hmm. from the original languages and then the translation can sign off and say this is a translation consultant can sign off and say this is okay to to publish. So we had to go through that with all the 10,000 verses. You're doing were, this for every verse you translate? Every single verse. Wow. Nothing gets through without a, a very close check like that. So,
1: And would you, would you do a book at a time or would you be working on several different parts of scripture concurrently?
0: In the beginning days, we did portions because it's really about the church, the needs of the church, and you want to be able to teach. And you could add years of time before mm-hmm. you could teach the people if you try to do a whole book. So at the beginning, we just started with portions. And then later, once you have enough... To be teaching, then you you can start working on whole books.
1: So you're translating and then teaching that kind of around the same time. Like as it's available, you're you're getting to teach that to some people.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Especially we didn't have a big team of people. Like the coworker that we joined when we joined the Sembari ended up leaving because they're they, they needed to take care of aging parents. And mm. um, and then we we had a single coworker for a while, but just a lot was on just me alone to teach and to translate. And yeah, and it was. It was overwhelming. But at the beginning, you try to get as much—you you need to get ahead a little bit in your lessons in, in Bible translation so that you have something to teach for a while. But there was a point where we finally—where I couldn't stay ahead. Mm-hmm. It was just too much, and I we ended up—at that point, we did repetition. We we would just reteach mm-hmm. um, some of these uh, portions, which was really needed anyway. Repetition is one of the—a a great form of teaching that yeah. is very effective. So, you hear it the first time, and sometimes it just goes right over your head. Next time, maybe it sinks in a little more. So right. Yeah,
1: that's one of the things I love about Ethnos 360's model. Is it's not you guys just aren't there to deliver a product of the Bible. You're trying to see people come to faith in Christ. You're trying to see churches established, right? Yeah. So just talk a little bit about that integration because there are some great organizations that only do Bible translation. Why do you see it as important? Why do you see it as important that both translation and church planning happen simultaneously?
0: Yeah, I just see the scriptures. You know, like the Great Commission, Matthew 28 talks about making disciples uh, in, in every nation. It doesn't talk about making translations of every language it talks about making disciples so it's a it's a people-focused commission that we have uh which is to you know to plant churches and so the the, the bible translation of course faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god so it's a tool and it's 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 what we want to build on we don't want to build on just a, a person a teacher up there winging it too you know we want to build on the on the firm foundations of, of scripture but not just on oral scripture like like a teacher yeah. we want to build those firm foundations on on written scripture too so that and like one thing we always did our lessons you can easily put the le- the bible verse into the lesson but then when you're up there as a as a teacher's going through it can easily like sound all like lesson material not like mm-hmm. there would be a difference between a lesson and scripture so yeah. i always didn't i only put the reference in there and so we clearly had to hold up a Bible separately mm. and say, this is what God's Word says, and it's different than the lesson material. In Acts 2, at the very beginning of Pentecost, we see that there was people from all these nations, and it yeah. lists them all. There's a whole bunch of these nations, and it says that they were all hearing uh, about the mighty works of God in their own language. Yeah, right. And so it was like, this was a—right at the very beginning of the church, we see that it was a very important to God that these people got to hear this message in their own heart language. And mm. so— we want to we want to do the same, you know. Yeah. We want to bring God's word to them in their own language, but at the same time, it's it's about building a church. And so, like, it is hard enough to get Christians to read a Bible, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. But if people are not Christians, how much are they going to read a Bible that you translate? Right. So, it's it's the people of God who love the word of God, mm-hmm. and you know, it's like the sheep who hear the shepherd's voice and follow. You know, it's like they're the ones who want to hear and study the word are the believers. So. Yeah. It's such an important, I don't think they should be separated right. personally. Yeah, there's a beautiful union in that. And yeah. as
2: we were fully equipped through the training we received, mm. not to mention how God fully equips us through his word, we wanted to be able to equip them and give them the tools they needed to be able to continue on with mm-hmm. the ministry yeah. in our absence, which they have done.
1: And we're about out of time, but talked about that. Where Where is the Simbari Church now? right? So they have portions of the scriptures, churches have been planted. Just talk a little bit about what the state of the church now among the Simbari people.
0: Yeah, so over the years we continued teaching and built them up. We trained teachers, we went on outreaches to other villages. We have now three different uh, Simbari churches. Um, And it's had its ups and downs. Sometimes we've had people fall away, uh, but then we have new people believe. Uh, So, you know, like with any church, it's got its ups and downs. But especially in our absence now, it's carrying on, which is is just wonderful. That's what we're shooting for with the scriptures as well. They have about half of what was translated from the New Testament that they're using as their Bible, a little temporarily bound uh, book. So they're still based on the scriptures, and they're still, even without us as missionaries, they're... Um, following the Spirit's guidance and 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 the church's functioning. So it's really exciting to see that.
2: I think there's um, two outreaches going on right now, teaching yeah. through the Scripture and literacy okay. at the same time okay. in two different villages.
0: That's amazing. Wow. So they are our, our teammates now, right? Uh, the Simbari uh, Bible teachers, and, and we are there to kind of support them, give them some guidance. Our work now is to prepare some material. Like right now I'm drafting up uh, Ruth and— uh, I'll be ready to take that over next time we go to Papua New Guinea mm-hmm. and we can work through with our helpers and do all those procedures I talked about mm-hmm. and also give guidance to the church who know anything that might have come up that they don't know, know how to deal with. I'll be able to give some guidance uh, to them. And so we want to continue to to serve and support them uh, as m- any way we can. And, and the best way we can do that now is that nobody else knows the Simbari language who can do this translation except for us so hmm. we want to keep bringing some of these scriptures to them especially like now the uh, old testament scriptures we only did certain portions and we've got to get into their hands but there's still some more we want to do like uh, stories that we would hear in sunday school and that kind mm-hmm. of thing we, we want to keep translating those yeah
2: and working on the audio bible as well yeah
0: right right just a couple things
1: <laughs> <laughs> you guys are back in the states now just you're at the the final stage kind of where's the process at and then what's next
0: Yeah, so we kind of do a deliberate stepping away. It's like you would do with a, a kid as they're growing. You give them more responsibility. You let them have the keys of the car and you let them go out on their own sometimes when they're still living in your home. And then eventually they get to a place where they're going to leave the home. And so, like, we do the same with the church. As they start to mature, we give them more responsibility. We hand over some of the teaching. And so that they're, they're doing that. And then eventually we actually moved out to a, a town in Papua New Guinea. And we were living there in a town doing translation from a near, nearby town for a while so that the church could start functioning on its own. Mm. But we were still close and we would still come in a lot. And we would they were still— you know, we were crossing paths a lot at that point, but now we're taking an even further step away, and that's again a, a chance for them to to st- stand up to the plate and and carry on with the ministry without us, mm-hmm. and leaning on the on the spirit and the words uh, of the Lord for guidance. And so, it's hard being away from the Sambaris. Mm-hmm. Worshiping with them is is amazing, and being a firsthand witness to, mm-hmm. and and being able to hear these testimonies and see what God's doing among them, it's it's like amazing, and we totally miss that. It's like your kids, too, you know, like when they're far away, you kind of— our kids are all grown up now, too, and you miss being with them, but you're happy that they're mature, because mm. God wants maturity for us. Our goal isn't just to to introduce people to Christ, but to bring them to maturity. Mm. So we're wanting to see maturity in different areas, like God's Word. Do they have access to God's Word? Can they read God's Word? You know, and then there's the, their identity in Christ. Do they Do they understand what it means to be in Christ? Are they known as the people of God, you know, yeah. in the culture? And then the life of Christ, are they evidencing the life of Christ through the fruit of the Spirit and loving one another and loving others as well? And all these things that are evidence of growth. And then last, of course, is discipleship and passing that on to the next generation and equipping people for, for the ministry. So, we're excited to hear that some of the Simbari's kids who grew up in the church are now, like, excited and Looking, And they're going to have a whole Bible in their hands, and they're looking forward. Some of them have talked about having a heart to go take the gospel to some of the farther remote villages that we've never gotten to yet.
1: That's amazing. And you guys are almost at the printing process, right?
2: Yes, the Bible is at the publisher, and Lord willing, will be printed in June. That's
0: incredible. Coming out of the printer, yeah, in June. Yeah. Being so put then put it'll a take
2: a month or two probably to get shipped to Papua New Guinea. And at that point, we'll head on over for the Bible dedication and to spend a couple months with the
1: believers there. I love talking to you guys. There's so much more. I have like 15 more questions, before we (laughs) we got to wrap this up at some point. Grace, Dave and Sherry are part of our church. They're around every Sunday. They're here. I would just encourage you to reach out to them. Hear some more of these stories. Just so thankful for you guys. I'm thankful for the intentionality and focus that you've brought, not just for a couple years, but over several decades. Thankful for your love for the scriptures and for the church and just for what God's doing. I'm thankful that you're my neighbors. Thank you guys for coming in (laughs) today. Thank you,
2: and we are extremely grateful for our Grace family and for the partnership of you all in helping us move along in this ministry and being a part of getting the Bibles printed. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Thank you guys for coming in today.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure to subscribe to Magnify Podcast so you never miss an episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. Post about it on social media or leave a rating and review. We would love to hear from you. So if you have any questions you'd like to ask in our mailbag, you can email them to magnify@gracebaptist.org, and we will answer them on the show. Thank you so much for streaming.